The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Carson Block. Carson, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your background? Did you get involved in the market? And what are you doing currently? Sure. So I founded Muddy Waters Research, Muddy Waters Capital. So we manage, manage some, we've got strategies that to date have primarily revolved around activist short selling. So basically for the past 13 years, I've been so-called activist short seller. Before that, I was in China where I was a lawyer and then I opened the first self-storage company in mainland China, which was a very embittering, disappointing experience. And before that, I grew up in the uh, capital markets. My father was an equity analyst and so kind of taught me the trade from a young age. And I learned enough to end up basically thinking that a lot of this is bullshit. And so you know, my business is looking for this bullshit and trying to profit from exposing it. The term activist short selling, I think you hear that in the media, but I don't know if many people really understand what that means. Most people, when they think short selling, they're just thinking, look at a chart and it's going down. Explain what activist short selling is. Sure. So first I'll start with traditional short selling. So traditional short selling is a niche in the investment world, but the cornerstone of traditional short selling is basically identifying melting ice cube businesses that for some reason you think you understand that the ice cube's melting faster than the longs do and you short it. Now it's been a number of years since that was thought of as a way of making absolute returns. It's generally basically a way to make alpha. So historically for short only fund managers, their clients are these large allocators who are along the world and they're saying, hey, you know, generate alpha for me. And so in years when the markets don't perform well, I'll get a little bit of insurance payout basically from investing with you. Now that's traditional short selling. It's debatable as to whether shorting scams, promotions, frauds is really a good idea for traditional short sellers. They've always been attracted to it when they discover that something is a fraud. But the problem is if nobody tells the world that this thing is a scam or a fraud and proves in which ways it is, I don't know, like that seems it can rip on you far more than I would argue a melting ice cube melting ice cube that you get wrong rips on you. So activist short selling, it existed before I came along 13 years ago, but it was very, very niche. It's basically 
Andrew Left of Citron Research, uh, this guy Manuel Asensio, occasionally Dan Loeb as Mr. Pink on the uh, Yahoo message boards. And they were focusing on microcaps. So like really egregious, scammy companies where they would just publish information seeking to refute you know, whatever management was saying. So they would take short positions and then they would go public and say, no, this is all a lie. The technology is not really there. When I came along, I was living in China. This is 2010. And yeah, I had this, you know, struggling self-storage business where felt like every day that I got up, well, I got up every day and you know, felt like I'd soon thereafter get, you know, kicked in the balls basically. But there was in 2010, my father had gotten really excited about these Chinese companies that had listed in the U.S. via reverse merger. And I had no inclination at all that there was systemic fraud. But he asked me to diligence one of them is this company called Orient Paper. So I was reluctant, like I really felt like I had my own problems and I just, you know, that was taking enough of my time, but it was my father. So just started looking into it. And I mean, it was clear that there were just numerous lies about the business and everything. And we ended up going on site and seeing this Potemkin factory. So I didn't really know what to do with this. But in June of 2010, I, yeah, I bought like $2,000 worth of put options because I was effectively broke at this point in time since I'd incinerated my life savings in the self-storage business and was in debt. So, you know, basically hit up my credit card, $2,000, buy some put options, had no idea what I was doing with the put options in terms of trading and sent this report, like a 30 some odd page report, just evidencing how this company called Orient Paper was a total fraud. It had reported $103 million in revenue the prior year. Real revenue, I mean, was two and a half to $3 million. And anyway, sent it to like 50 people I'd last spoken to in the markets, you know, nine years earlier, because I'd been out of the markets for that long. And the report went viral. And, you know, next thing I know, the stock's down 55% the day after. And I'm getting death threats and Jim Cramer's on CNBC screaming about, you know, this guy and self-storage guy in China who is a fraud and taking all these arrows. But I then learned that this was systemic with these Chinese companies. And we, you know, look, we won the war with Orient Paper. We didn't get a kill shot that would have gotten it delisted. But, you know, it became clear to the vast majority of market participants who cared that the thing was a fraud. And so then basically this business was born where... For the first few years, it was these frauds from China that were listed in the U.S. put together 30 to 120 page reports just with all the evidence that these things are frauds, take short positions ahead of time, send the reports out. And yeah, so like, you know, in June of 2010, I was a dude sitting in a like tiny or subscale self-storage warehouse in Shanghai, China. Uh, one year later, Bloomberg named me one of the 50 most influential in global finance with like Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett. And it's like winning the lottery, really. So, you know, here I am 13 years later, I'm still more or less doing the same thing. But it's, you know, we do this globally because you know, the way I, you know, what I came to you know, realize, and this isn't a great revelation, but, you know, like stupid criminals go and like knock over liquor stores. Smart criminals go to where the money flows, and that's the capital markets. So wherever there is liquidity and stock borrow, there will be people doing things they shouldn't do. And, you know, there's, you know, there's an opportunity for activist short sellers. And the final thing I'll say on this is, 
while the origin of my business was dealing with like complete frauds, you know, I think the bigger problem that the world has is the stuff that's probably not over the line from a legal perspective. Like, you know, these, these guys have enough lawyers that they don't violate the letter of the law, but they violate the spirit of the law. And lots of companies to publish highly manipulative financials, say things that are really misleading. And at the end of the day, they have enough plausible deniability that nobody's really going to go to prison. And that by number and aggregate, market cap is the far bigger problem that the world has. So that's where we spend most of our time now is stuff that's highly complex financials and accounting and just basically sifting through that and saying, look, the economic reality of this business is not a dollar a share. You know, like 50 cents of that came from transactions with, you know, deconsolidated affiliates that really should be consolidated, funded by debt. It's not a dollar a share. It's really 50 cents a share in earnings. So that's what we do as activist short sellers. Well, it's been the conversation, but I, but I am curious that you mentioned uh, puts. As an activist short seller, I'm going to assume that you would rather do outright shorting as opposed to playing with options because then you have to deal with time. Well, the short answer is yes, but not for that reason. So again, with that first one with Orient Paper, I didn't know what I was doing. A few years later, I went back and I tallied up all my trading and I realized that I lost $600 net on my, you know, like the day after we published, those options were worth twenty twenty five thousand $25,000 at one point, you know, which at the time was like all the money in the world to me. And I was like, oh my God. And I didn't know enough to understand that it's because the vol was, you know, had spiked and I should sell at that point. But not the issue soon after, because that Orient paper report, not only did it begin a business for me, but a lot, it created a lot of other activist short sellers who just, because there's the first time somebody had basically proven to the satisfaction of most of the investing public who cared anyway, that one of these things was a fraud. So a lot of other activist short sellers came out of the woodwork to copy the model. And, and, you know, especially with these Chinese companies, I mean, it was like the gift that didn't keep get or that kept giving. So problem became is that everybody was loading up on put options right before publishing. So after, you know, after a few months, basically, you know, what happened was traders figured this out. They're like, okay, somebody's hoovering up like these puts that are deep out of the money and are one week from expiry, you know, in a Chinese company, like, hmm, somebody clearly knows something. So the vol would blow out. And then what happened is companies got tipped off. So, you know, they had ways of a lot of these things are, Look, why commit a fraud if you're not also going to manipulate the stock? So a lot of these guys had access to manipulation kitchens. And so the the concern was that they would get their money ready to just start lifting offers as soon as you you put your report out. So it became the problem with options is it was just tipping off the market as to what was going on. And, you know, if you fast forward to today, you know, we, you know, we manage outside capital. And so it's pretty rare that there's going to be enough liquidity in the options market on something that we're shorting. It's pretty rare for that to find the liquidity that would move the needle for us P&L wise. So the way we look at it is like, hey, upside downside on this, like why, you know, why tip off the market that something's, you know, potentially coming? Let's just sit back and focus on the common. That makes a ton of sense. Okay. So I want to get into this the thesis that you teased out by email to me, the new world order. 
And again, I used to be the old wrestling fan, so when I hear New World Order of uh, Hulk Hogan and all those guys back then, I know it's not what you mean, obviously. But I think that beat this everybody. What, what is the New World Well, yeah, I guess the phrase has probably been overused quite a bit, so I should have maybe tried to be a little bit more original. But so I obviously have an extensive background with China. So I li- I've lived there twice, total of about six years, practiced law there. I co-authored a book uh, for the the Four Dummies series, which is actually was written, unfortunately, way above the dummies level, but it's doing business in China for dummies. And so, yeah, I mean, I fancy myself a, a China expert, although most people who say that you should ignore. So take this with a grain of salt. But so there we were in April of 2020 and COVID had just started sweeping the world uh, or had just swept the world. and. I read this column in the Washington Post in which the columnist broke the news about the State Department cables that had been sent in previous years about the Wuhan Institute of Virology and its bio, you know, its level four lab not being up to snuff in terms of safety. And I really cogitated for a a little while on that. And I came to basically I came to the conclusion that there are two possibilities here, right? Either it came from that, the lab or it didn't come from the lab, then, you know, it came from the wet market. But either way, you know, the lab thing is obviously a major problem. I mean, they were warned, you know, by the state, you know, by the U.S. State Department at the time, the National Institute of Health. But even with the wet market thing, I mean, I remember the first SARS that supposedly came from civet cats in a wet market. And so I'm looking and I'm saying, The world is basically on fire right now because either way, you know, like China's government was at best negligent in, you know, trying to prevent something like this from happening, then basically covered it up and lied to the world about it, which, you know, certainly didn't make it any easier to avoid this. And the way I'd been looking at the West's relationship with China for some years was that, I felt that China had really lost a lot of popular support, you know, among the people. But the thing is, you know, our at times treasonous multinationals were always happy to happy to sell out, you know, national security and future generations for the sake of making this quarter's numbers. And, you know, they were able to basically buy off enough politicians to, you know, to keep everything business as usual. And, you know, Trump started to change that. But, you know, when I thought about what COVID was doing, I was like, you know what? I think the popular anger, I think, you know, we will all emerge from this so fucking furious about what has happened to our lives that I don't think the politicians and the, you know, kind of corrupt multinationals will be able to hold the dam anymore. And the dam will break and it's going to be a complete realignment or it's going to be a significant realignment of geopolitical relationships, you know, namely how the world relates to China. And so I thought, okay, that's, you know, I mean, that's cool. What's the trade? So the first thing we looked at was, well, what do you short? And that was really a hard one. You know, it wasn't like the global financial crisis, you know, if you saw that coming where it was obvious, because I mean, you're talking about global dominoes, like what's going to fall and when, and we really couldn't figure it out from that perspective. So almost begrudgingly, I asked, well, what do you go long? And in so, so, so many ways, the long side business is much better than a short side business. But 
those answers were, I mean, it, it's clear who the beneficiaries are going to be. But to us, you know, and I think this one's also kind of obvious, but sort of talking my book here, but I think the largest beneficiary from this realignment and basically the redirection of FDI flows that would have gone to China, the biggest beneficiary relative to the size of its economy and its capital markets, I think will be Vietnam. And you know, so we said, okay, like, you know, let's open an office in Vietnam. And we opened that office in Vietnam almost two years ago to get ready to launch a Vietnam strategy. Well, I mean, really the new world order strategy, but you know, one of the hallmarks of this also is that countries that are not aligned, you know, or countries that sit in the middle, basically between the two poles here are going to be, I think, in general, best positioned in the world. So you kind of see, you know, Saudi drifting, you know, towards the center away from the U.S., see India getting closer to the U.S. But I mean, all of these, you know, all of these dominoes, to use that analogy again, uh, all these dominoes are falling right now. These realignments are occurring. And, you know, I would argue that I can draw a clear line from this to, you know, the land war, which is a big land war that's taking place in continental Europe right now. So, so yeah, that's the new world order kind of origin and thesis and how we're looking to capitalize on it. All right. So so I think this is actually really interesting because I've looked at Vietnam, at least the ETF in the past a few times, but some of the the sort of market depth in Vietnam. So you've got the office there, you're going to create or you have the strategy around trading Vietnam stocks, investing long short. What's the depth of the market? How many stocks are there? Because it's obviously a lot smaller. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so first of all, I mean, we don't think that there's edge in being an active trader in Vietnam. It's a frontier market. And, you know, the locals, when it comes to the day-to-day movements, I mean, yeah, you know, that things aren't on the up and up, you know, relative to the U.S. So you're going to lose that game to the locals. So we think that the way to benefit there is a buy and hold strategy. Now, when you look at the ETF, you know, that mirrors the index. And the problem is with the index is that it's generally I mean, the, the most significant portions of the index are real estate developers and banks and real estate developers look, you know, like not shockingly. And, you know, when you look at even the West, how we've gotten overextended in real estate in Vietnam, there, there was some real excess and some of the developers are in real problem or real trouble. And that's washing up somewhat on the banks. You know, some banks are, you know, some banks are reasonably well-positioned, others have real exposure, but that's also creating a bit of a credit crunch. So that's the problem with playing the index there is that you're going to be, you're going to have outsized exposure to that. Now, the kind of flip side funny thing is you also get a lot of exposure to uh, the VIN group, which is the largest conglomerate in Vietnam, largest privately owned business. And they recently IPO'd or SPAC'd a subsidiary called VinFast. And now VinFast has ripped. The reality is it's a tiny float, right? So it's probably more for technical reasons than for fundamental reasons. But that's also, you know, that's also helped create enthusiasm, you know, for the VIN for the VIN group stocks as well. So that's kind of pushed up the index and, you know, it'd be reflected in the index fund. But among, I mean, how to play it, you know, we like the, you know, we generally like the Vietnam mid cap space, which a mid cap in Vietnam is, you know, much smaller than mid cap here, but you know, like 500 million market cap, maybe, you know, maybe up to a billion market cap for the most part. There are, 
you know, there are companies where at least we think management is focused on the long term. The accounting can actually be kind of conservative in ways, surprisingly. But, you know, the I think you have to, you know, it's just it's a part of the world with, you know, where you don't have the strong rule of law that you have in the West. And so really need to look, you know, you really need to look very carefully at what you're buying. And when we were on month two or three of having our office there, a lot of the things we thought were probably going to be core holdings by month, you know, 13, we're like, no, we understand why this is, why we would not want this in the book. So it's a hard market and it's a hard market to, to play in. And like I said, I mean, you could do the index, but you really have a lot of concentration there in the index. So it's not giving you a good diversified uh, exposure to the Vietnamese economy. What's the, the sort of sector industry makeup of uh, the equities there? Is there an overwhelming industry that dominates the stock? Well, again, by size, you're looking at real estate developers and banks. But if you, know, but if you think about, okay, but if we don't weight market caps here, you get a lot of, you know, like very basic industries there, you know, like paper manufacturers, water treatment companies, like, you know, utility, you know, power operators. So it's the, you know, these companies are generally pretty simple. Dis- distribution companies, there aren't really, there's not a ton in the way of homegrown tech companies there because, you know, when it comes to say software or social media, you just don't have the scale in Vietnam that you have in China. Like, well, Vietnam will never in and of itself replace China. But yeah, like one of the companies that's actually one of the better run companies, it's just, it's tough to, it's tough to buy it as a foreigner because they, they're these foreign, these caps on foreign ownership for Vietnamese stocks. And this company FPT, it's, yeah, they do a lot of offshore software development and, you know, they've done very well, but that's one where, you know, like everybody wants to buy it. It does appear to be a well-run company. Um, but that's kind of an outlier there. You're mostly looking at industrial, you know, if you want to get away from like hugging the index, you'd be mostly looking at heavy industry or basic industry, uh, basic industrial type companies and some consumer companies. Has there been anything interesting on the on the political front and government front in terms of, you know, more interaction between the U.S. and Vietnam on internal reshoring? Well, you know, Biden was just there last week. So that was huge. And it's the first time a U.S. president has visited Vietnam since, you know, the war. And yeah, I mean, the U.S. definitely wants to build up Vietnam as a strategic partner. But, you know, Vietnam gets that it needs to, you know, really just needs to balance the U.S. against China. And I heard when I was in when I was in Vietnam last summer, I spoke with somebody who is an official at the U.S. consulate in Ho Chi Minh. And they said something really interesting. They said, you know, in talking with Vietnamese government officials about the war in Ukraine, you know, they're of the view that it was Ukraine's fault. I said, really? I said, well, here's the way they look at it. They say, look, as Ukraine, you know, you are not a power. You are sandwiched between, you know, this pow- huge power of Russia and the West. And you should not do anything to antagonize, you know, either power to the point that it can become hostile. You have to balance them. So that's how Vietnam looks at its role or where it's positioning between China and the U.S. And now the Vietnamese public writ large hates the mainland Chinese. You know, they fought a war in, uh, I think it was 1973. 
they just, they, you know, they really just despise China. Now, not so much with Taiwan, because I guess they've adopted that, you know, attitude of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but with mainland China. And that's really why the foreign ownership limits exist is because and when it comes to these stocks is because Vietnam, and I think this is, I think this is right. They just want to make sure that they are not subsumed by Chinese, you know, by China and Chinese entrepreneurs and Chinese investors. But yeah, that's so they're, you know, look, Vietnam is never going to be, you know, a U.S. ally in the sense that they'll, they're not going to align themselves with us against China because that would obviously be highly provocative to China. But the, you know, like Vietnam will be happy to be an irritant to China, you know, vis-a-vis increasing its relate the depth of its relate or deepening the relationship with the U.S., but not to the point where they could be accused of being U.S. aligned. I, I am curious, actually, on the, since you mentioned the real estate side, has there been a lot of appreciation there? I've had some people from Australia on these spaces, and they've noted that, you know, property prices in Australia have gone vertical because a lot of money from China has gone into Australia. I, I don't think they have caps in the same way you're alluding to when it comes to Vietnam. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. I have the property sector there. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it look in the era of, you know, cheap money. I mean, the rates were, you know, for SM status were low in Vietnam. There's tremendous amount of speculation on uh, real estate, particularly apartments. I mean, it's, you know, that's just kind of like an Asia, you know, pan Asia phenomenon, especially after the uh, the GFC. So, yeah, the price of, especially at the high end, luxury real estate really ramped up and, you know, beyond where it's, you know, I mean, what I guess you, you could say is it's fair value. But, you know, look, I used to sit in mainland China in 2005 and say, this is insane. There's no way this apartment should be 20,000 RMB a square meter, you know, sale price. And then, you know, a couple of years later, it's 25, then 30, and then Probably by the time everything imploded, it had hit fifty or sixty thousand a square meter. So it took a long time for those chickens to come home to roost. However, State Bank of Vietnam had to raise rates in order to protect the currency when the U.S. and ECB hiked. So they've recently cut rates somewhat because they, you know, they're just trying to balance that, you know, growth versus, you know, or issues with the currency and inflation. So. They're trying to they're trying to walk a fine line, but real estate is has come under significant pressure since the hikes, the rate hikes. Just to reset the room for everybody here, please make sure you follow Carson Block here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, just click that bottom left micro quest button. And as always, again, this will be in the podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. But let's do a little bit of a hard pivot from Vietnam to ESG, which I know you've been, you know, public, publicly outspoken against that. You mentioned that you've shorted some stocks in the space. ESG was all the rage up until last year. And then energy took the 
national conversation. And ESG seems seemingly now is a lot less pushed than it was so for now. Lay out just some of your thesis around why ESG is bullshit. Okay, yeah. So, look, let me start by saying I believe climate change is real, you know, and it is caused by human activity, emissions of, of carbon dioxide from burning hydrocarbons, like, you know, all of that, you know, is real and I'm not disputing that. But the issue, I mean, the issues with ESG let me back up a minute here or, or go to an even higher level, which is hopefully not too theoretical or philosophical. But for a number of years since I started this business of activist short selling, I've termed the way that our world works, at least the Western world, I've called it the tick the box apocalypse, right? Like you can basically do anything if you can create enough paperwork and, you know, just tick various boxes. We've been living in society you know, Western societies, I mean, have been placing form over substance in important ways for decades. I mean, I really think about our, you know, just especially in the U.S., how the people who generally are the policymakers and hold the levers of power are generally lawyers. So like we live in a lawyer's, you know, wet dream, so to speak, because all everything is paperwork, right? So, so with this form over substance reality or, you know, increasing underpinning of our society. Now there was clamoring like, oh, let's ensure that, you know, financial flows um, are directed away from businesses that are that are actually doing harmful things and are going to reward businesses that are going to try to solve these problems. But the issue is in, you know, when we're conditioned, we're so conditioned now to just ticking the box, right? So you could say, oh, I bought the solar ETF. I'm cool. Right. And everybody along the line is doing this without stopping and asking questions like, well, okay, solar panels, where are they made? They're generally made in China. Okay. How are, you know, how are those factories powered? They're powered by generally coal fired power plants. Huh. Okay. How do they get here? Well, they get here on cargo ships. Right. And those are powered by diesel engines. How much carbon dioxide is emitted, you know, in that process? And, you know, how in, in like that, I mean, how long do these things actually last and what are the alternatives? And, you know, everybody, you know, like in the ESG world, I mean, the green world, you know, believe for a long time that nuclear is the thing is a technology of the past and we need to get away from it. And so we've been, you know, really telling ourselves, we've been like hugging solar panels and windmills and ignoring the possible externalities that they create, such as, you know, these windmill farms. Well, they're harming migratory birds and it looks like offshore wind farms could be harming whales. And it's and it's not that we you know, it's not that we should shoot ourselves for doing that at this point. But it's it's symptomatic of the fact that we've rushed headlong into adopting these technologies without really asking questions. And so when you take that to the capital markets level, you know, I mean, ESG, you know, so I guess a pure form of ESG would actually be, despite my criticisms of it, solar ETFs. But, you know, when you look at the big, you know, what, what it's become, what so much of ESG has become in practice is it's just checklists, right? So I, about a year ago, that's when Ron DeSantis, you know, is part of like the anti-woke thing, you know, throwing meat to the, you know, his base, red meat to the base. He, I think, signed as an executive order or, you know, or there was legislation 
prohibiting Florida's public pension money from being invested in a so-called ESG funds. And then there was a Bloomberg op-ed written by their one of their editors emeritus arguing that this is horrible policy and citing returns on various ESG indices that have, according to the op-ed, outpaced the market. Well, when I looked at those indices, I'm like, whoa, hold on a second here. This ESG index you talk about, it's got the exact same top 10 holdings in it that the S&P 500 does in basically the exact same weightings. I mean, we're talking, you know, maybe Microsoft was like 7.2% in the S&P and 7.18% in the ESG index. I mean, it was really just minor differences. And yet, when you look at the funds that were the index funds that are pegged to the that ESG index, their fees are 67% higher than for the, you know, than for their S&P 500 index funds. And so like, this is just a joke. Like people are, you know, like a lot of investors, I think are kind of patting themselves on the back saying, oh, I put my, you know, my 401k money in the ESG index. And it's like, dude, it's the S&P 500 index just at a much higher fee structure. And I mean, look, there's a lot to say about the hypocrisy of the ESG movement, but one of my favorite moments over the past few years and kind of my journey into becoming just massively disillusioned with this space was when I um, met this guy, um, his name is Tarek Fancy. And so Tarek had been hired by BlackRock to be their first CIO of sustainability. And so he went into that job, like really pumped, you know, like Tarek's, you know, like Tarek's a substantive guy. I mean, you know, he runs a nonprofit, his background had been in venture, but you know, he, felt there was like a higher calling in life. And so he'd been pursuing that when BlackRock hired him and, and he was really excited. He thought, okay, great. Here's a chance to make a real impact on the world. You know, so then next thing he knows, he's flying around on a private jet with other BlackRock execs going from gala to gala, you know, where like caviar and champagne are being served and everybody's talking about how wonderful they are for saving the world. And, you know, and he's like, yeah, and at the end of the day, I realized that we're just selling basically the same products at higher fees and we're not doing anything. And so he's written a little, I think, I don't know if you call it manifesto about his experience. And he's spoken publicly a number of times, but his words are that ESG is like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient, that it's doing more harm than good because by ESG being so prevalent, it's causing us or maybe enabling us to say, hey, the solutions are being worked on. We don't have to do the hard work. I don't have to really think about this. Everything is fine and under control when, in fact, it's not. And, you know, this is an argument similar to an argument that I've made about audits with respect to public companies and fraud risk is that, you know, like I can make, you know, like I think you could say, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously maybe 50-50 or 60-40 on this, but investors are less protected from public stock frauds because of audits, because audits give a false sense of security with respect to fraud. Now they perform other functions, but that's similar to what Tarek is saying here. So the final point that I'll make on this, you know, diatribe and lots of other points I could make, but you know, maybe there are questions that can lead me there or we move on. The final thing that I'll say is that problem, I think really one of the problems is that 
you know, you've got government subsidies here that drive a lot of this. Now, I don't, I haven't voted for Republican for president and, you know, I don't think I ever have because I started voting in 94, but, you know, so I, I don't want people to think that like I come at this from a hard right perspective or anything, but what I've, you know, what I've learned, you know, through observation is that once subsidies are out there, it create, it does create these distortions in the market. And what we see, you know, when we look at say the public solar companies and the one that that we've done the research on and written about extensively is Sunrun. But, you know, I think a lot of their abuses are common throughout, you know, are, are common among the big winners. Is that the companies that win in the subsidy-driven economies are not the companies that are providing the best services or the best products or doing things the best, except for gaming the system the best. And I don't really have an answer to that because I do recognize that, there are, you know, in, in certain situations, we have to have a role for government to make, you know, make certain behaviors or changes more economic. But the issue is the guys with the best lawyers and the most gumption are just going to game the system and make themselves incredibly wealthy in the process. And I think make things, you know, leave things worse off than they would be otherwise or put out of business the companies that are like, hey, you know, like I'm not going to I'm not going to lie about the basis of this PV system here and rip off the taxpayer. You know, I'm going to be honest about this. Well, you're out of business because Sunrun just ate your lunch. So um, anyway, let me pause there and, you know, see where you guys want to go. You know, and, and actually, the, the, the point about uh, these ESG funds basically being S&P uh, funds in disguise, I mean, that's typical Wall Street, right? I mean, create yep. a product that 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 is trying to chase performance and because the performance has largely been in pain, right? And things like that, then let's find a yep. way to try them in the ESG. That's not unusual. But if you're going to bet against the ESG, you also don't want to necessarily bet against those. So I guess the question really becomes, how do you even properly identify a company that's more on the scam side and benefiting from the ESG flow as opposed to the large atmospheric position? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, look, I mean, we've, as I said, we've been out there on Sunrun and the thing. So I guess when we became thematic in the ESG space, only in in retrospect. So I think the first green tech thing we shorted was September of 21. It was a bioplastics company called Danimer. Uh, David, Nancy, Margaret, Robert is the ticker. You know, that's in the dirt where it should be. Then, then we ended up in June or July of last year, a shorting a company called Hannon Armstrong that finances a lot of renewable projects. And those guys, I mean, just like horrific accounting, massively misleading accounting, you know, pays dividends, but that's return of capital, not return on capital. You know, probably the dumbest guys in the room when it comes to the renewable space They're, you know, but anyway, so... That that has, you know, that has gone down a decent bit since we 
expose the economic reality that was underlying the accounting. But a few weeks later, we shorted Sunrun. And with Sunrun, we had the, the great fortune of hitting peak risk, basically getting our, having fully built our short position you know, on this one particular day, when the market closed, and about 20 minutes after the market closed, it was announced that Joe Manchin had agreed to a climate bill. So that thing, all the solars opened up the next day, up 25%. And we hadn't yet put out our report, but we had, I mean, this was a new, you know, this was a new fact pattern for me. So we had this discussion, should we put the report out today? And, you know, the secondary point that we were making in the report was that Sunrun was abusing, you know, possibly, you know, actually crossing the line in terms of tax fraud, but it was abusing the tax subsidies. So we thought, okay, well, look, there's a focus today on, you know, fiscal policy with respect to solar and other renewables. Maybe we should put the report, let's put the report out today. It could maybe get to be, you know, part of the conversation. Well, with 2020 hindsight, that was a horrible idea because nobody noticed the report. It was absolutely subsumed by, you know, the, the euphoria and the news flow on the, uh, what would, you know, ironically be named the Inflation Reduction Act. But the thing is, if you look at Sunrun right now, relative to where it was, even the day, you know, day before the announcement of the IRA, you know, it's down a decent bit. So I, I mean, these solar companies have horrible business models. Like they produce negative EBITDA consistently. Like that's, that's a horrific business model. And they just have to keep sucking up money from the capital markets. Now, I don't, you know, we're not presently short Sunrun. You know, I mean, we got our ass kicked really hard with that one. But, you know, I mean, should it be a zero? Yeah, it should be a zero. Now, does that mean that Carson Block is saying this thing's going to zero? No, because, you know, there are a number of companies out there that, you know, really should be zeros, but somehow trade at, you know, 700 million, you know, north of a billion market caps. So, but this is, you know, these are non-economic businesses. So I think that a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of the renewable energy, you know, so-called renewable energy companies, I think a lot of these are really non-economic businesses. You just, you know, it, it just becomes hard to predict exactly when the bottom falls out for them because there's still, you know, like there's still this large desire to shovel money into them because people feel good about themselves when they do that. So those are the things that are intention. You mentioned that example of sun running and getting your ass kicked on it. I think that's a good transition to sort of a, a tricky topic, which is how do you manage risk when you're, you know, a believer in something that's going, that's going to go down or something that's a fraud? Because to your point, right? I mean, you can be right, but as I always myself emphasize, path matters more than prediction and you have to manage that. Right. So as activist short sellers, I mean, there's a, you know, there, there are elements to this that are not relevant to, you know, your average short seller. And I firmly believe that your average retail investor should not be shorting stocks, but at least single name stocks. But, you know, when we, so the twist here is when an activist short seller goes public, like did they, want to tell the world or, you know, screaming from the mountaintops, these are the issues with company XYZ. The reality is, if company XYZ does not close down a decent bit on day one, it probably gets ignored because, you know, there, since the GFC and, you know, the emergency monetary policy that lasted for 13 years, that's also created what I 
can call this lie to me culture where, you know, when it comes to equities, long side investors who cared about risk got basically left behind. They became anachronisms or even jokes, you know, derided as value investors. Whereas, you know, the one, the guys who like chopped up the blue pill and, you know, snorted it, you know, and like just bought narratives were the ones who, you know, who were remunerated. So we still have, you know, we still have some of that. We still have a lot of that. I think lie to me culture left as muscle memory, you know, even today post, you know, rate hikes. So the problem you face as an activist short seller is people have to care. People, you win over the long run by company having to answer difficult questions and having to admit like, yes, yeah, well, yeah, no, I mean, the way we accounted for that, uh, okay, maybe they have a point. And, you know, the company internally feeling like, hey, we can't be this aggressive in doing this and we need to chill out because everybody's watching and maybe directors and officers start to resign. But you need that pressure, that scrutiny that really comes from the longs. And if the longs get out of, all right, I don't have to care about it, fuck it. And so if the longs don't care about it, then the company is not going to have to care about it, right? So as a short activist, you know, if you're going to win over the long term, you need to have you need to have a good day one. Now, the you know the percentage of times if you, short activist does have a good day one, I mean it's overwhelmingly significant percentage of time that the stock is going to continue to fall apart over the long term because you know short activists. I mean, look, maybe I shouldn't generalize, and you know, and I'm not speaking about like you know, your average guy on Seeking Alpha screaming at the top of his lungs about a $110 million market cap company here. But like people who've been in the game longer, even those I don't like, you know, I'll say they tend to be directional. We tend to be directionally, at least directionally correct almost all the time. So that basically day one is a key. So what do you do like to manage risk? Well, you know, we hedge on the long side. So we hedge factor basket with factor baskets. And, you know, one of the things that I think is just, I mean, this might be obvious, but since the financial crisis, it's been awful for your traditional short funds. I mean, almost all of them have gone out of business. The AUM in the traditional short space, you know, is a fraction of what it used to be. And part of the reason for that is, you know, like the PMs would have on, you know, they'd be short 40 companies or 110 companies, whatever it is. And they think, hey, I'm reasonably diversified. I'm short all these different names. But the reality is you're short like the same factors, you know, so you're, you're short momentum stocks or growth. And when those factors move against you, it's actually, even though you think you're diversified across companies and industries, you're not diversified across factors. And so you know, this is like the underpinnings of the smart beta strategy, but what we do on the long side is we try to, you know, we have software that'll take, you know, stock XYZ and say, okay, well, you know, from of its beta movements, 30% is explained by momentum, you know, 15% by global telecom, 8% by this. And so then we will go to our, our, you know, prime brokers and say, okay, we want to create a basket of 30 to 50 stocks that kind of mirrors this factor composition. And that's what we hold on the long side. So on the long side, we factor hedge. Now, on a day when it's like massively risk on, you know, we're still going to lose, you know, those hedges won't, you know, won't have us perfectly, but, you know, it, but it does, but basically we're trying to create alpha 
vis-a-vis those factor baskets. So that's one way you do it. Now, the other thing is, it's kind of like the, to me, the naive, like the textbook view of, you know, how do you trade is, well, you know, if you liked it, shorting it at $10, you'd love shorting it at 15 But the reality is no. Like, you, you know, you have to, of course, feel like you're right. But more so than you have to feel like you're right, you have to feel like the market will eventually care. And so sometimes we can look at it and say, you know, especially if there was no good day one reaction, we could say, look, the market doesn't care or won't care. And there's no point in holding this. But if the stock squeezes to 15 and, you know, but you feel like, look, I think we're going to get traction out of this, you know, over the long term, you have to trim, you trim, trim. And then when the stock starts breaking, you know, maybe it's when it gets to eight or nine, then you're like, okay, I'm adding back my position. Now, again, that sounds counter, you know, counterintuitive if you're going based on the textbook, but a lot of these movements, especially when stocks squeeze, I mean, it's purely technical type of movement. And, you know, more and more trades and and price outcomes in the U.S. markets are determined by algo, not humans actually sitting there thinking like, hmm, you know, what do I think the stock is worth? Like, you know, that's what our grandparents did. Like, that's unfortunately not what happens now. So a lot of times you have to just kind of try to figure out like, okay, I think the algos are, you know, calculating probabilities that, you know, will not lead them to buy this thing thinking it's going to reverse or rip. And, you know, you're trying to outthink algos, but that's when you add. But yeah, man, you just, you got to be on your toes. If it starts squeezing, reduce and then figure out what's going on. Carson, for those who want to track more of your thoughts, more of your work, and obviously you're active on the podcast and media rounds, but where would you point them to? Well, I don't tweet or X that much anymore. But look, on my, we've, I also have a, a website called zeros.tv. So that's Z E R, the number zero, E S dot TV. And that's dedicated to short type content. But about every two weeks, we publish a podcast called Zero Fucks Given. And that's usually my partner, Freddie, and our office manager, Krista. That's, you know, we think we're funny. That's us just mostly sitting around and, you know, riffing on the absurdity of the capital markets in the world and ripping on Tiger Global and Credit Suisse and, you know, all those. So, I mean, until Credit Suisse failed, we kind of had this recurring segment of like, you know, this week in Credit Suisse misery porn. But we come out with those about every two weeks. The first one, or we're going to release one probably in about an hour, actually. So you can watch them on the, on Zeros.tv. They also get uploaded audio only to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But I'm not sure that there's like a lot of wisdom in there. It's more just us taking the piss. But yeah, I guess that's probably where I'm, I'm most consistently active these days. So, yeah, a good place to wrap this face up. Eric, please make sure you follow Carson Block here on X. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Carson. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions.
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.